I partially feel like that my role is to be a stimulator or catalyst for that change and to push us into more areas of uncertainty to try new things and be more experimental. You're listening to the Wholehearted Podcast and I'm your host, Cohen Tan. I'm on a mission to set hearts free and inspire people to break out of their self-limitations to create the life of their dreams. Each episode, I speak to people around the world who live with vigor, courage and authenticity and I hope their stories can inspire you. So sit back, relax and enjoy this episode. Hello listeners, welcome to another episode of the Wholehearted Leadership Podcast. Today I'm extremely excited that I'll be talking to a new friend of mine, Jeffrey Schwab. I met Jeffrey on the sidelines of the ATD conference in Taipei in October 2023. We hit it off straight away. Jeffrey has got a really interesting story to share. Hi Jeffrey. Hello Cohen. Let me introduce you to Jeffrey. So Jeffrey is from the small town of Lexington, Virginia but he has lived almost half his life in Asia. After starting his journey in Japan, he's lived in China for 13 years and now currently resides in Taipei, where he has been there for six years. He lives in Taiwan with his wife Mayumi and three-year-old daughter Luna. A lifelong improviser with a growth mindset, Jeffrey is a seeker of micro-adventurism and enjoys learning through interactions with others. He has worked in experiential education and travel, and post-COVID, he's the first chief learning officer at a Taiwanese tech company, PTSC. He has also founded two bilingual improv groups in Beijing and Taiwan, and he enjoys the challenges of bridging improv communities. Welcome to the Wholehearted Leadership Podcast, Jeffrey. Great. Thank you for that introduction. So let's start with uh, questions we typically ask our guests. So Jeffrey, let's dive right into it right now. What does being a wholehearted leader mean to you? I think being a wholehearted leader, uh, it's uh, connected with really being in the moment and finding what type of adventure, uh, what type of discoveries we can find in that moment, on that day, in that hour, in that afternoon. Uh, I think that uh, just really being present and yeah, discovering being in a state open to constant discovery and a curious mindset, I think, yeah. Wow, fantastic. But that's not always easy, isn't it? Because leaders have so much responsibilities, pressures, stress, and be able to anticipate the future. So sometimes leaders are often like living in the future rather than in the moment. So what in your observations so far are the key obstacles for leaders serving wholeheartedly? That's a good question. So some of the obstacles for being in the moment, I think that um, being caught up kind of in the machine of uh, the organizations that we work in uh, is one of the obstacles. You know, like there's, we put ourselves on the timeline and we're, um, maybe leaders might be comparing themselves and might be thinking, oh, you know, I have to reach certain numbers, certain results, and just worried that we're not going to get there, worried about the things that are not within our control, and really focusing a lot more on those things that are not within our control. Those are distracting from what's right there in front of us, what's within our control, what's within our, within our grasp. So, you know, whether that's a small company or a large company, I think that uh, there's a lot of things that can kind of distract us. And maybe what's what it is that this person said or what it is that 
uh, we think that our leaders or that the stakeholders, if we're the leader of a company, you know, what our stakeholders or what our investors might be looking for. Those things are things that can get into our head. And then we might think, oh, how to prioritize. And it can be really kind of chaotic if we let all those distractions take hold of us. Wow, I really like that. I really like that. I think um, I've, I like the piece where you said we are concerned with all the things that we cannot control. And then we start getting into all kinds of speculations and we, we start to overthink things. And then that's how we can get really distracted and, and instead of staying in the moment and doing what needs to be done in that moment. Talking about being in a moment, let's rewind the clock back to like what? 20 years ago, like when you first came to Asia, I think this is a remarkable story, right? So you're American, you're white, but you have lived in Asia for the past like 20 years. So what brought you to Asia in the first place? Yeah, great question. Yeah, 20 years ago. I had a lot more hair on my head at that time. Uh, let's see, that was, uh, I, I was, I was living in uh, Portland, Oregon. At that time, actually before that, I did part of my student teaching. So I, I majored in elementary education, actually. And I did part of my student teaching uh, before Portland in uh, Ireland. And I remember when I was in Ireland, you know, as you're in Ireland, as you do, you go to a pub. And some, I don't know if you have this, Colin, but there's, there's certain like conversations that you have maybe with strangers that just appear in your life. And maybe it's the only time you ever talk with them. But in that moment, it's what happens in that conversation that really um, turns something on with you. And I talked with this guy who was probably about 10 or 15 years older than me and talking with him about, you know, living in Ireland. And um, he said, if you really want to go somewhere different, you want to go to Asia, you know, like, you know, and he kind of, it kind of planted the seed in me or it awakened something that was already within me that, you know, I want to see more. I want to see more of the world. And for Japan, you know, I, I just knew that I liked sushi. <laughs> so, and I thought, I thought, I thought, you know, oh, well, Japan is like, it's an island right there. So it's a good place to start my journey. And, you know, I said, well, I'll try teaching English there. And little did I know, I never thought that I would stay in, that I would still be in Asia almost 20 years later. You know, uh, from Japan, I was taking some Japanese classes and a lot of the classmates were Chinese and they were from Dongbei, from Northeast China, and they were totally different from the Japanese that I met. Of course, you know, different culture. That also planted the seed. I was like, huh, that made me really curious about China. And, I, and I, you know, it's like, wow, like there is this whole huge nation right next to Japan. That, that made me curious about China. And so I went there again, never thinking that I would stay there for 13 years. You know, I can go on about like there are these certain things that happen in the moment or like seem to happen spontaneously. Or these people sort of appear. They're almost like magical. And they appear like, the, like these classmates of mine from Northeast China or this guy in this bar in Ireland. And this conversation sparked something that, again, was within me. But it came from the course of that conversation, too. Yeah, and also um, I remembered we have this like, just random conversation. Uh, I just approached you, and then we we just we just talked, and we just got on like a horse on fire. And now I understand why, because um, we both just enjoy a great conversation, don't we? And um, like like what you shared, I also have had many many of these experiences. Whether is it on my travels, um, just somebody sitting next to me in an izakaya 
or in a Chinese barbecue shop and we just chat and we just talk and we will just like make friends and you never know, you know some, what somebody somewhere in the world a random conversation may just spark something in you and I think that's a great great story what are the top three changes or growth you have observed in yourself since you moved to Asia I think um, one of them is just uh, letting go of things um, and I think that that's not necessarily having to do with Asia, but it might be kind of have to do with my own age and just things I've learned. So letting go of things, for example, uh, maybe like in, in the company, if I want to have a, an activity where I invite, you know, 20 to 30 people to join. Um, and then in the end, maybe there's three to five people. And when I first started, that was really tough for me to take onto account, to accept. But now it's more like, wow, really awesome that these three to five people are here and just letting go like of these other people that I wanted to join but for some reason or other they they can't join the event um, the learning event or the sharing event it's like okay now we can really focus on these this smaller more intimate group of people so that's something and also you know as you age you people leave your life too like there are friends that leave your life and and there was a part of me that felt that really hard to let go of some some friends and I still think about them and and um, you know we're just grown apart and actually now um, I'm just grateful for the time that we had which I think that's a that's a point of growth um, another would have to be I guess thinking with a bilingual mind which you know I when I was very young I did live in France for a year when I was two but that, that was very long ago so don't really recall that but living, yeah, with a bilingual mind, I think does affect the way that you think uh, because you start to think in another language. And when you're thinking in another language, then so much of culture is wrapped up with language. And so you start to see things from another viewpoint, which is uh, really interesting. I think it slowly starts to um, accumulate over the years, which is really fun. And then um, the third change, I guess would be kind of kind of what I was just talking about is sort of sacrificing some of that individualism that that we hold on to so dearly for a more of a sense of uh, community and uh, that kind of like community support and knowing that it's okay to you know um, be helped and to ask for help and at the same time it feels good you know to to help others too so I think it to build that community so that's been something I think I always had but like just to know that, yeah, you don't have to do everything on your own, you know? And it's actually good and more sustainable to involve others, to involve the team, yeah. That's great, that's great. Now talking about involving others and involving team, I think that's a great segue to, to move into, to transit into improv, right? Which is something that you are extremely passionate about. I think that's your, your core passion outside of work. Um, so can you tell us a little bit more about improv and how did you get into it? Yeah, well, I would say that uh, improv, so for those who don't know, yeah, improv, how I would explain it, is just uh, creating creating stories, creating scenes on the spot. Um, when you think about it, everything is improvised because you don't have a script for life. And just, uh, but one of the core elements of improv is this idea of yes and, so building on what your scene partner or what your teammates say or do. Uh, and this is, can be done on the stage, of course, and for, can make for great performances, or it can be done off 
offstage or in, in life as well. So your question was, um, you know, like how is uh, improv like affecting my life here in, in, in Asia or when, I, oh, when I get started? So when I got started, I would say actually, so my older brother did improv. Uh, he's 10 years older than me. He did it in college and we would play improv games when I was a kid, I remember. Um, and for me, it was just like being creative and just having fun and make believe and all that stuff. But I, I did create a group when I was in Portland, Oregon for a year. Um, and Japan did not, I was there. And then when I was in uh, China, in Beijing during those 10 years, I was uh, part of an improv community called Beijing Improv. Um, and there was an English, there was a bilingual workshop that happened every week, which the community could join. And then there was an English performance group. Um, and then we also created an offshoot of that, which was a fully bilingual uh, performance group called Big Bilingual Improv Group. Uh, so when I came to Taiwan, there was not this group. There was there was a an established the improv scene was much younger here, uh, just starting off. There's an established fully Chinese language group uh, called Guts, and uh, they've been around for a while. But there was no bilingual group, um, and I really wanted to create that. So I had in mind like. I, I had a goal, I had a vision of what I wanted uh, a group to be. And I thought, okay, maybe as well give a shot and see if I could like organically piece together um, a group from, I knew no one here. I knew a couple people, but, um, and slowly started to like talk to people about improv uh, in, uh, I went to polyglot language cafes and I thought these polyglot learners are some of the best improvisers because they're so used to throwing themselves in an environment where they know nothing and just going with it. Indeed, indeed. I think improv has really changed my life. You know, um, when I learned improv in 2018, I was very much a control freak. You know, um, as a keynote speaker, I always need to have my slides, my script, my, like, I, I'll rehearse, you know, what I'm going to say on stage. So mm. diving into the world of improv was really really life-changing for me because um, I have to let go of all that sense of control and, you know, being able to be in the moment, as you said. Um, and that was really, really hard for me. And um, so I think improv has really changed my life. And uh, even in including this podcast, um, I was just sharing with a previous guest that uh, learning improv has really also helped me become a better question asker because being able to be present to the moment, listen to, to what your, your conversation partner has to say and be able to improvise questions on the spot, right? That's, um, mm. I think, a, a very key skill. So that's how improv has changed my life. How has improv changed your life? I think, um, you know, improv has changed my life is that to embrace the uh, embrace uncertainty, embrace and actually more than more than embrace, pursue uncertainty. You know, I think mm. that more than embracing uncertainty because we know that uncertainty i mean every day everything is uncertain really we think that things are, in con are some things are in control but actually really nothing's in our control and so to to pursue that to go do things that you haven't done before to give things uh you know give things a shot and to also uh to embrace failure and to say because because a lot of times on stage or whatever um there's we celebrate failure in improv you know and i think failure needs to be celebrated a lot more so for example in my company which is i think i can see it trying to break free of more of a, a conservative way of doing things i can see that there's a there's this desire for that i partially feel like that 
my role is to be a stimulator or catalyst for that change and to push us into more areas of uncertainty to try new things and be more experimental um so in my job sometimes i'll i'll just think of ideas or like okay i want to do this do this thing i want to start this um association within the company and or i want to get these funds for this project and i'll take it to the chief finance officer and you know i'm like okay i'm ready for you to reject me you know like i won't say that but i'm just i have this mindset like okay if she or if they if they reject me if my ideas get rejected this can be celebrated because it just gives it means okay this is great this means i can there's something to learn from this interaction next time i'll do better i'll learn how to communicate it better i'll i'll know more from their perspective um as long as they're patient enough with me <laughs> then then it's okay we can we can we can learn to work this out you know um of of course there is a part where it's like i can see when i when i come in with an idea it's like oh here he goes again but it's like there needs to be there needs to be space for that i think in every organization if everyone's like that maybe it would be like all over the place but i think that there needs to be space for that kind of experimental um mindset so it's it's helped me um in that in that way i mean my my specific role is an experiment in the making um you know as chief learning officer it's job crafting in the moment uh because they've never had one um and to my knowledge i haven't met another one with that specific title in taiwan i think that there are others that do this type of role for for sure but um yeah just just not being afraid of failure and actually knowing that failure is the good thing because then you can learn a lot and you can just you know do better next time you know or wow. say okay I'm going to go down that road yeah wow i love that i love that idea the philosophy of uh, celebrating failures right like i think i think here in asia we have we over the last like 50 60 years we've had this big huge economic push um so this economic uh, drive and this economic growth and success has really led to this sense of competitiveness this sense of we got to get it right we got to get we got to do it right um you talk about quality circles in japan we were talking about um you know um chi- chinese companies you know in the fast growth companies in this this in this economies and obviously together with that comes the education and uh, the pressure to to get 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 good grades in in the in the national examinations and all that i think there's just this whole pressure cooker atmosphere where we cannot uh, accept failure failure is really to be eschewed yeah. and i think this is such a big sea change it's such a 180 degree change towards this idea of hey you know we could celebrate failures we could celebrate our our mess ups uh, or our our fuck ups right uh, as a way yeah. of you know as a way of saying okay hmm what can we learn from this uh, because if we don't celebrate failures what happens is we are so paralyzed by the fear of failure that we don't even try at all so when i think about for example my 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 daughter's school for example um and it's just it's great and there are certain um you know there are certain things that for example that i know that i might i'm not going to agree with everything 100% that the way that they do things and the way that they educate um uh but at the same time like that is a choice it's a choice that we made to pay for my daughter to go to school so i think that part of improv is yes and okay yes this is the situation at the school this is how they do things and uh we're going to work with that we're going to we're, we're going to work with that so like you know if i want to mic i i can't 
I can't micromanage the way that my teachers or the principal do things at the school. Like this is a choice that we that we've made, and that's I think that that's a big lesson from life that things you know nothing is going to be a hundred percent the way that you want things to be, and that's that's also something that it's like you learn constantly to put your ego um, aside um, and be like, okay, this is what we have, so let's work with the situation. Um, that makes me think of the book, The Power of Now. You know, so this is like in the moment. You know, you have like basically three choices if, if about the situation. If you don't like it, you can say, okay, I'm gonna I'm gonna reject it. I'm gonna leave. I'm going to accept it and work with it, or I'm gonna do something to try to change the situation. Um, so I think that those are like, you know, when you when you're in a situation that you're not so into um, that you want to see a cha change or you're, you're it's making you uncomfortable you can think about things like okay these are kind of like three roots that I have um, in that situation yeah and I'm not saying that I don't like the school I think it's a good school but there's nothing that you'll like a hundred percent I love it. I love it. The ability to embrace, you know, imperfections very much similar to uh, the Japanese, you know, philosophy of wabi-sabi, like being able to yeah. accept imperfections. And um, also, uh, what I really like is you, you've just given us uh, enumerated three pathways, right? It's like three choices. And very often we forgot that we have these choices. We, we give away our sense of age agency because we are easily triggered by events or we, we are usually emotionally invested in in things that we don't agree about right so i think really it's kind of like the art of disagreeableness right like you don't have to agree with everything you don't have to accept everything but you you have to accept the situation as it is and then being able to also lean into your agency to make that choice and we often forget that uh, when we are triggered or when we are emotionally invested we we forgot that choice. I think it's it's often the forgotten choices that we have. I really like that you just um, enumerated it for us. I think that's very very powerful. I think that's something that all leaders can learn from as well. I think um, very often um, we become leaders because we become very good at what we do, and we become quite certain about the things that we think we know, and. Uh, what happens then is when situations happen, we just have a very trigger-happy response towards it, um, not realizing that we are constantly making these choices every single moment. And uh, obviously, it is these micro-choices that we make that you know, shape the, the trajectory of our, of our business, of our company, of our team, isn't it? Talking about leadership, um, I really like the idea of about, like, empowerment. A lot of empowerment and trust especially with younger generation or people that might not they might not think that they're ready to believe in what they're able to do or what they're capable of doing and I and I I think that like the sooner that we get that we put younger generation the younger generation in positions of power the better uh, in a lot of ways and and to let them know you know um, by empowering them, we're showing a lot of trust, and, and then they're also feeling that they're seeing that. Um, so that's something that I like to say. Okay, let's set you up, like, because I, I do believe that people, if they are kind of new to something, or if they they're not quite there, but if you put them in a position where they're going to um, have to deal with more responsibility, then they will rise to that more often than not. I do, I believe that, um, and they will appreciate that. I think. Yeah. And, and you'll be surprised, but 
you have to be okay. We have to be okay as leaders to step back and say, okay, they're making some mistakes that I wouldn't make at this point, but that's okay because the mistakes, the return on investment of those mistakes right now is going to be tenfold because they're not, they're going to learn from those so much quicker than if I did it for them or if I told them, you know, oh, I can, I can see what's happening, but you know, we can take that mistake. It's okay. You know, so, and we have to know that it's okay and that, yeah, I've made lots of mistakes too. I'm always making them, so. As you face the challenges of living up to your own and others' expectations, you may sometimes feel lost and lonely. However, know that you're not alone. We are here to support you in leaning courageously into your heart's promptings. If you'd like more tips, resources, and to learn more about how you can live more wholeheartedly, or to book me as a speaker, trainer, or coach, please go to coentan.com. That's C-O-E-N-T-A-N dot com. Wow. I, I, really, I really learned something there and uh, I just had an aha moment over there as well because um, as a leader of my own company, uh, there are times when I I want things quick because I'm, I'm impatient about results. And so when, when sometimes my team members make mistakes, I have to really, you know, embrace that that perspective we always talk about how espouse the value of we are a safe place to work we are a safe place to be ourselves and everything but sometimes the way we we respond to things not turning out the way we want them to be and this little micro expression micro moments it does set the tone and it set the culture doesn't it how can leaders you know um, resist that response I emphasize a lot on the process and the journey there almost almost in a way that makes people you know like uh the very results oriented um leadership um nervous or because i feel like my philosophy is more like if you focus and enjoy the process uh then the results will organically and naturally come to fruition and if we it's good to have a have a vision. I feel like and and you know like uh, like a goal, but to not necessarily be married to that goal, for lack of a better term, or say like that goal is static. I think that we can we can have a relationship. We can have a we can play with the goal. We can almost treat treat the goal like let's have a conversation with the goal. So when we set these like KPIs, if you if you're in a company or whatever, and you're setting KPIs for the end of the year. At the beginning of the year, so much happens in a year. It's like there's there needs to be conversations that happen with our goal. It's almost like we can let's see the adventure in KPIs, you know. So for and we can we can name them like you know this is this is Arnold my my, my KPI. Let's what is what does he or she look like you know like and and let's have fun with that and and say it's it's okay to make adjustments to it based on the reality of the situation. That's not giving up. That's not failing. That's just being realistic and being in the moment too. I think it's okay to have that conversation and make make our goals and our our results a bit more um, flexible. Yeah, I think the idea of uh, really like um, clear intentions but non-attachment to results. I think that's so hard for us to to embrace, right? I think I've heard uh, this mentioned in a LinkedIn post by um, a LinkedIn 
um, influencer that I, was fo I, I follow very closely recently, the idea of having clear intentions, uh, be very clear about what your intentions are. I think that's very mm. important because very often we get sidetracked as, and distracted, as you say, uh, from our intentions. And then, but this uh, detachment from the results, because when we get too attached to the results is when, you know, we, we, we clamp up, we become uh, not agile, we become so fixated about the results that we end up like a dog chasing its own tail. And, you know, um, I think that uh, I had a friend, uh, a very close friend who, who told me, and he said something that uh, really resonated with me. And I also read this book uh, called 4,000 Weeks, which I highly recommend. And uh, you know, how many things in our life are, you know, at the end of our lives are unfinished. You know, some some things just don't get done too. And I know that that sounds like an excuse or a defeatist attitude, but it's actually, it's reality too. You know, um, there's, there's so many unfinished projects um, and because they're unfinished, does that mean that we, that we fail at those projects? Um, or, you know, did we learn something along the way? You know, um, did we grow? while we were doing those projects maybe there's a reason maybe those projects weren't meant to be finished you know not everyone is meant to be finished because we only have so much time but i think that there is there's a lot of value in in unfinished projects but we also have to remember that there's a lot of things that we don't finish and maybe we just get to a point and that is actually the finish of it you know that's the end of it right there so wow that's, that reminds me of the last sagrada familia in uh, barcelona uh that I think that church has been like in the building has been the building phase for the last like what hundred years and it's still not yeah. completed yet and still you get like hordes and hordes of people millions of people queuing up to enter into that isn't it so I think that's yeah, yeah. Um, just a very very good, uh, apt metaphor to kind of like um, being the ability to to embrace imperfections um, the ability to not not chase after co uh, completion all the time and um, the ability to really focus on the process and and how we are growing as a result. I think James Clear talked about this as um, setting identity goals and identity habits, identity forming habits rather than, you know, just the goals as a destination by itself, right? So I really like how you, what you, you kind of like personalize, like make it a little bit fun, like give, give your goal a name, like Arnold, Jeffrey, Stephen, Stephanie, right? Giving the, the image, right? It helps people to visualize, um, imagine that identity that we are evolving into, right? Uh, for example, if uh, uh, PTSC is a person, how would that person look like? How would a person walk like, talk like, dress like, mm. sound like, right? So it's, it's, it's kind of interesting to, to kind of like personalize that. I, li I like yeah, that technique. Uh, you know, like when you're saying like make it fun. I mean, that was actually one of the very first things my manager told me when, when I started working there. He's it, like that I remember. He said, make it fun, you know? And so I was like, okay, well, I will. Like that's just, that's just how, I, that's how I work, you know, trying to, trying to find the fun. And you know, it's like we gotta have a theme song for the company. So like, work with a, <laughs> a uh, with a award-winning musician that I happen to know. And we made the so for this company for my previous company, I've written the theme songs for both companies. That wasn't <laughs> that wasn't something that was in my job description, but it was like, this is so much fun. Like, why not just jump into it and like like write a theme song and do a podcast for the company in Chinese, you know? Um, and it's not part of the job description, but I'm like, let's make it fun. Let's get people engaged. Um, with with that kind of stuff, yeah. Fantastic, fantastic! You're doing so many different things, right? Um, so, how do you eradicate the the word "busy" from your vocabulary? 
I wrote about this once in a post, and I've read some stuff about this too, that I think that there's a, a talking about status, and there's a busy status and a busy culture. And if you ask someone, you know, how are you? And, and the answer is busy. Well, what that actually is saying is like, I don't have time to talk to you. <laughs> so, so, you know, it's, it's like, well, or like busy, we just, we've grown accustomed to naturally accept that as a response to saying like, okay, we're not, this conversation is over, you know? Um, so it's just, um, yeah, it's like, how are you? I'm busy. Oh, okay. Uh, you know? um, so I think it's like, well, if someone's asking, you know, and I think we, in, in America, we probably ask that question like, too, too often and not, don't really want to know the answer. But it's like, like, what are you up to? Like, well, rather than saying I'm busy, it's like, well, what products are you working in? Like, I'm, I'm interested to know, like, what are, what are like two or three things that you're working on or what's some challenges that you're facing right now? Um, but uh, I try my best not to say busy because um, I, I think that busy is a, can be like a mindset and kind of like a, um, can turn into a status status symbol um where it's like okay i'm at the point where i'm i'm busy i have many things going on and i can't fit this conversation in right now you know whereas Mm. whereas whereas we could say it's like um you know like i'm i'm in the middle of this thing right now that i'm working on maybe like can we talk later this morning or this afternoon but actually like like giving a redirection to saying no you are important we can talk and but just at this moment i'm unable to you know that's great. That's great. And since you talk about you know status, right? I think that's a nice segue into this. Um, we, we we previously chatted uh, very casually, and you did bring up this very interesting phrase, right? Um, and the phrase is anti-competitive. So can you talk a little bit about that? I'm very fascinated by that idea of being yeah. anti-competitive. Yeah, I I've become a more of a like a flag bearer for like cooperation and. Kind of, there was a book I read also, so by an author named Alfie Cohen, um, educational psychologist. It's called No Contest. And when I read that book, it really struck with me about um, kind of the negative aspects of competition and how we, as a society, this is American, um, and this is quite a few years ago, but I think that um, things have been magnified since then, have become sort of addicted to competition or whenever we want to do like a team building. If, there's this idea that oh it has to be a competition or uh, if we want to do an activity with students oh let's make this more fun by making it be competitive now some people might be might be motivated but a lot of people might feel quite uncomfortable might feel like oh we're learning that in order for me to be successful you have to lose um or like i can be the only person that is successful like if you're in something that's where there's like a first place or whatever i think that you know there is that in the world like there is competition in the world but i just feel like it's not my role to add to that because i feel like there's already enough of that so a big part of that improv for example is like everything you want your scene partner to look good you want to help you want to build something together with them you don't want to beat them because if you beat them you're not working with them you're working against them so I think with, uh, you know, the opposite is like, we, we can really try to challenge ourselves if we're thinking about like a team building event or kind of a learning um, thing. We say, oh, we gotta, let's make it more interesting. Let's gamify it or whatever. And I, I think that, you know, there are positive aspects about that. But if everything is gamified, it's like, well, how are the people that are not winning? How are they, how are they, they're being, they're demotified, you know, 
there by this by this whole process so if it's something where it's like well we're actually help helping do something together and there's a lot of um you know there's like team building events where you're actually like building building things together then you get this kind of rush from like wow we did this together we did something where we did a uh uh, was it 20, 22k walk? The whole company did in PPSC, and and it wasn't it wasn't a competition. It was like we were in different teams, but we you you wanted to like finish with your team, and each team had like twenty people or fifteen to twenty people on it, and it was something that everyone had to get through. And part of that again was the process in the months leading up to this walk. We were supposed to practice walking together as teams in different locations using teams uh, or like online and that really brought people together and so it was like this this thing that we were doing together and that there was nothing competitive about that um which was really cool um and people got to know more about each other through that um so yeah i think i really recommend that book um and just thinking about like okay if i'm going to design an activity if your first instinct is to make it a competition, see like, okay, let's see if we can challenge ourselves to make it, what if it wasn't a competition? So like, if you do a scavenger hunt, when I when I used to design them for students and it was competitive and there were prizes, I found that people rushed through everything and they would even try to pick the other teams, right? And then I said, okay, now this next year, let's do it not competitive. And sure, there were two or three students that say, what are the prizes? And it's like, you know, it's like, well, your prize is finishing, you know, whatever. And, and, uh, but actually for the majority, like they took their time. They had conversations with people along the way. They weren't trying to trick the other teams. And I was just like, yeah, you just take out the points, take out the competition and they'll take their time, you know, and they'll, they'll get into it for the most part, you know. Wow. I, I, I really love that, right? So you just give me another aha and light bulb moment over there. It's like, um, as a workshop facilitator, I often design the workshops that I, I facilitate and run, um, giving them activities, role plays, um, case studies. And very often in these workshop activities, there is this element of competition about it, right? It's like people are just going to be like competing for that, that sneaker bar, right? It's not about the sneaker bar, it's about that bragging rights, it's about a sense of professional pride. And gamifying things obviously do create an element of competition around that. So now I'm really starting to think how much of that is actually propagating a kind of a win-lose game rather than a win-win, right? The idea of uh, negotiation, uh, thinking of win-win negotiations rather than a win-lose kind of um, scarcity uh, philosophy around that. I really like that. I really like that. No, Jeffrey, it really struck me as you're sharing, right, that you really seem to be very much of what... um, Seth Godin will call a purple cow. <laughs> a purple cow is like somebody who kind of like swim against the current, somebody who's like so different. Right? And, um, and I, I can imagine that immense adrenaline rush that come from, you know, being the person that kind of like goes against the current, the person that sticks out, the person that is not quite the same. But there's also a, a form of loneliness that come from that, isn't it? Like, you know, it's like you feel like on certain days when you're the only person who's really, you know, advocating for something and people are just not, are not paying heed to that because it's just, you're, you're going against the grain of, of the masses. Have you ever felt a little tired or challenged or lonely around that? Yeah, that's a good question. Um, I, I think uh, there is some loneliness and there is some things like that make me wonder, am I doing things the right way? Um, or uh, like, what am I doing wrong? 
uh, sometimes how do I talk uh, with with um, this person, this group of people? You know, I don't come from, for example, a tech background. I work in a tech company. Um, it's pretty much all Taiwanese, but I'm a pretty positive person, and I'm um, and I can see that as like that's a challenge, and a challenge is a good thing. And then also seeing, you know, rather than again uh, focusing on the people that don't join. Don't show up. Um, really, kind of magnifying those people that do participate. So, with certain tools, technology has really helped with that. Um, so, there's certain platforms using to kind of like um, to show gratitude and to emphasize those that are joining because I think that there there can be uh, a positive effect on the rest of an, of an organization to not judge that because people might not be joining in an activity doesn't necessarily mean. It's not about me. It's not about my ego. It's not about the fact that oh, they don't like me. You know, whereas like there is a voice inside of our head that says that, and we have to listen to that and say, where's that coming from? That's coming from my ego. Um, but actually, maybe the real reason is they have other things on their plate that they're working on um, that they're unable to get to at that time, or. Uh, you know they're feeling pressure from other points, so there's so many things to take into consideration, and um, I find that uh, uh, things really turn around when I have one-on-one conversations, like the one I'm having with you. Um, I really have a good uh, relationship with my manager, and and have one-on-ones with him, um, and I really believe in the power of those one-on-one conversations that they they need to happen regularly and scheduled, where people can. Talk about these things where I can talk about、um, these things and what I need. So it's a constant process. So yeah, it's stepping back and seeing the progress and seeing where I was before, where I am now, and then that will help me adjust to where I and whatever organization I happen to be working with. That's phenomenal, right? It's like that's、uh, positive psychology in a nutshell, right there. It's like instead of well, I invited like twenty, thirty people who said they would be joining, but only five showed up. Instead of kind of like really like feeling judged or feeling rejected or feeling really down about oh you know they don't like me, you're focusing on the five who showed up. Like why did they show up? What were they looking for? What would what what drove them? Like what drove them to show up, right? And so starting from there is is like a starting point, a a a spark from which you can start a fire. And I think I think that's really remarkable. Um. um Optimism there that you're 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 showing. Are you always so optimistic,、uh, Jeffrey? Because you, obviously, as a CEO in a、uh, in in a in a big organization, you probably feel face a lot of challenges and stress.、Um, have you always been this optimistic, or what are some of the deliberate practices that you have have to do to maintain this this optimism? Yeah, I think、uh, I, I I think I am mostly a pretty optimistic person. Boy, is there what that's what's that term toxic? Optimism, no, no, or, or yeah, I, I toxic positivity. I, I've probably been accused of that as well.、Um, so I can't help but being optimistic, and I think it's also, it's also just seeing like that's that's part of like living in the moment and being being present and、um, living as you say like wholeheartedly, right? Seeing every day is every day is an adventure, and like what happened yesterday, put that aside. If there was something negative that happened, that doesn't have to stay. That's yesterday, you know. That's something that can be learned from and can be improved on from today. So today is a new day, and what can I what can I do today to to grow? You know,、um, if and and what are practices like if if there are things are not necessarily going your way, necessarily going my way, there are certain there are things that I can do to change 
my mentality or there are actions I can take to change the way the situation is going. If there are not that many people joining in something internally with the company. So I've started to also now invite outsiders um, from like LinkedIn or whatever to join um, from LinkedIn event like company uh, projects uh, or company like events, which actually stimulates those within the company. Um, to get this outside perspective. So I think that in a way is a win-win um, situation. And that's been a kind of exciting experiment uh, that I've been doing recently. So yeah, just I think part of practices are just challenging myself to see things from different perspectives and to say, okay, what's something new or experimental that I can try you know, today in that micro-adventure, yeah. Micro-adventure, what's that? Um... Can you share a bit more about that? This is a very oh yes, yeah. sorry that was that, that was something that's a term that I heard from uh, the Art of Manliness podcast, um, and <laughs> just basically saying like seeing the adventure in every day, and you know like for example, um, one micro adventure might be if I take if I take my 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 daughter to the playground, so. While she's on the playground, going these slides, playing with these other kids, oh, there's a pull-up bar over there. So I haven't used that pull-up bar before. I'm going to see, oh, I'm going to make the walk over to the pull-up bar. And like, this is my little micro-adventure while my daughter's playing with this other with this other kid. And say, am I going to be able to do one pull-up or two pull-ups? Now you know my my limit right there. <laughs> so so <laughs> on, on, the way, on the way to the pull-up bar, there's like this Malaysian night heron, like this bird. I'm like, oh, I can take a few moments with this with this bird because they're like not afraid of people and just observe them and everything like that. And then, you know, then my daughter comes and joins and like, this is something new that's happened on this day. You know, so just seeing the new thing, you know, taking a different route to work, sitting in a different seat, uh, talking to a different colleague. Um, these are all like kind of the micro adventurism mentality, trying a new shop that you walk by every day, but you never walk into. Um, so this can happen every day wow 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 i think you really live up to your role as the the chief learning officer of your organization because uh, you're constantly learning you're constantly challenging yourself you're constantly evolving and at the same time i think uh, a chief learning officer needs to have that kind of that sense of adventure sense of wonderment and a sense of curiosity which i think you really embody uh, in abundance uh, jeffrey it's so 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 enlightening and so freeing uh, just chatting with you and talking to you because you're like this box of ideas that you know, you're always trying new things right and um, you, you have a goal in mind uh, but you're always looking at trying new things like throwing different things at it and see what works and what doesn't and being able to celebrate failure I think that's um, I think that descriptions kind of encapsulates um, the value that you bring to the people and to the company that you work with so um, we're almost coming to the end of the podcast and uh, as usual we would usually um, end the podcast with a few quick fire questions to our guests so are you ready for the quick fire questions uh sure are we ever ready i don't know yeah let's see. <laughs> as an improviser you're always ready right so the first question is this what's the most powerful question you have ever been asked before Hmm, the most the most powerful question uh, I've been asked before is, I guess uh, if I'm on my my dying bed and I could go back and say something to my younger self, what would that be? Yeah. Hmm. I'm actually very curious to know the answer to that question. What would that be then? Take your time. <laughs> <laughs> 
<laughs> I love right. it. I love it. I love it. I like it. I like it. I, I, uh, sometimes we tend to rush to complete and we end up not doing uh, the best job. Who is a mentor or supporter who, have, who has made the biggest difference in your life? Uh, I would have to say my older brother, uh, Brian. There's four of us, four siblings. Um, I have uh, a quite a good relationship with him. We communicate a lot. He writes a lot of handwritten letters to me. Um, I have a box full of them. Just received a couple postcards. Some some months receive two to three letters, um, and just he lives his life really uh, deliberately and very much to his own pace. Um, and he's someone that I th- I really yeah I really look up to him and really can kind of feel like he's non-judgmental and uh, will always make time. He will always always make time and he'll be very present um and he will you know he'll look you in the eyes and he'll you can feel like you can really go deep where you feel like you're just gonna have like um that after dinner conversation that's gonna be about like just whatever whatever topic but you could be talking for the next like four hours with him and so uh, he's a great writer great communicator and a very authentic person yeah love it love it what is one of the most courageous things you have done in your life that's made all the difference? Uh, I'd say one of the most courageous things would be, wow, it wasn't me that gave birth. That was my wife. But I would say like, yeah, now that I have a daughter, you know, being becoming a father, I guess, uh, would be one of the most, because you're bringing a new life into the world. I don't know what's, what's more courageous than, than that because there's so many things that can happen throughout someone's life. And I see like a lot of positive things that can happen on Luna's journey. I mean, I'm just hoping that she remains curious and takes those, takes those risks and reach, reach it out to people and, 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 you know, keeps learning. Yeah. So. Fantastic. Brilliant. I'm, I'm sure she, she, she will embody the same spirit as her father, always learning, always curious and always trying new things. Um, so thank you very much for this great chat uh, Jeffrey if our listeners would like to follow you on socials or they would like to find you where can they find you yeah so uh, Jeffrey Schwab I'm, uh, on Facebook I, I'm very active on, on LinkedIn as well um, and then uh, yeah I would encourage people to uh, check out um, Formosa Improv Group uh, if you're ever in Taiwan uh, we're also on LinkedIn Facebook Instagram um, yeah thanks Jeffrey it's been a real pleasure talking to you It's been awesome talking with you. Thank you so much for today. Another great episode of the Wholehearted Leadership Podcast. I really like that all our guests bring such different perspectives to the table. And what I really like about Jeffrey is like he embodies this spirit of like a childlike mentality. The ability to see the world with fresh eyes and always being willing to experiment embrace failure and being able to try different ways to get around an obstacle or a challenge. He is the chief learning officer of an organization and I was sharing with him that I've never met a chief anything officer who has such childlike mentality and willing spirit. It definitely isn't easy to be the person who sticks out and swim against the crowd. It takes tremendous courage And I really learned so much from Jeffrey about how he's able to maintain that positivity, optimism, and that childlike mentality, even in the face of pressure and challenges. 
I hope you found this podcast episode to be enlightening and useful for you as well. To the next episode, stay wholehearted. Thanks for being part of this heartwarming conversation today. If you've enjoyed the show as much as I have creating it for you, I really appreciate it if you can leave a review wherever you're listening to this podcast. And while you're there, why not subscribe to the channel so you won't miss a future episode. To the next episode, stay wholehearted.